Hello, welcome to Out in the Bay, queer radio from San Francisco. I'm Eric Jansen. Today, we meet the first openly lesbian justice on the California Supreme Court, Associate Justice Kelly Evans. In 2021, we introduced Out in the Bay listeners to the first openly queer justice on California Supreme Court, Martin Jenkins, a gay man. Now, just two years behind him, California's highest court has its first out lesbian justice. Associate Justice Kelly Evans, recently an Alameda County Superior Court judge, was sworn into the state's high court January 2nd, 2023, and we're thrilled to get to know her too. Both of these justices are also African-American. We'll hear Justice Evans' thoughts about the importance of diversity in our legal system and judicial branch, and most importantly, get to know a little bit about who she is as a person and her journey to California's highest court. So stay with us. Justice Kelly Evans, welcome to Out in the Bay. Hello. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. You bet. Before we get into our conversation, I just want to briefly hit some key points of your life up to now, including Akalaz, in case you don't like to toot your own horn. Um, (laughs) Evans spent her childhood in Denver, Colorado, raised by her grandmother. She says she was a voracious reader even as a young girl, more excited by the bookmobile coming through her neighborhood than the ice cream truck. She was lucky to move into one of the best public school districts in Colorado just as she started high school, where she excelled, one of the few black kids in her AP classes, I have to mention, excelled there, got into Stanford University, where she came out and met her future wife, and later earned her law degree at the University of California, Davis. Just before joining our state's highest court, she was an Alameda County Superior Court judge. Before that, Evans had a rich, diverse legal career in government, nonprofit, and private sectors. She's worked for the Sacramento County Public Defender's Office, the American Civil Liberties Union, the California State Bar, the U.S. and California Departments of Justice, and Governor Gavin Newsom's office. That's quite a list, and I doubt that it's even complete. Justice Evans is well-known for her work in criminal justice and police reform. She served as a federally appointed monitor of the Oakland and Cleveland Police Departments and was instrumental in crafting Governor Newsom's 2019 death penalty moratorium. She fills the associate justice seat vacated by now California Chief Justice Patricia Guerrero. Justice Evans, congratulations on all you've done so far and especially on your appointment to the California Supreme Court. Thank you. That's very kind. Thank you. I suppose let's just start at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about your childhood in Denver. Sure. Uh, Well, as you mentioned, Eric, I grew up with my grandmother, Frida Onita Cooper was her name. And whenever I'm asked, who are my role models? She's the first person that comes to mind. She was an amazing role model, an amazing person. She raised her four daughters and then me and my little sister. And she only had an eighth grade education of her own, but she knew that education was the key to opportunity. She knew that education could unlock doors. And so she always stressed to her daughters and to her granddaughters the importance of education. And she did everything she could to make sure that our house was always filled with books, uh, whether it involved buying an Encyclopedia Britannica on what I'm sure was a usurious installment contract that she probably paid for 10 times over and making sure I had access to those books and I rent them A to Z and Z to A and back and forth again. Wow. She would um, find bargain bins where there were books for sale and she would figure that it was a better deal the thicker the book. So she would find books on sale for $4, very thick. The thicker the book, the better the, the bargain. 
And so I probably read some pretty inappropriate titles as a, as a young person, but I had a great <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you said that you wouldn't be a lawyer or judge or justice if not for your grandmother. In fact, you said at your confirmation hearing that you placed the original of your law degree in your grandmother's casket when you buried her. If you don't mind, I'd like to play a short clip from your confirmation hearing. When it came to my grandmother, I and all of her daughters, all of her granddaughters, her great-grandchildren, her grandsons, we're more than her wildest dreams. We're actually the direct manifestation of her deliberate, intentional actions to make sure that we had opportunities that she was denied, that so many people were denied. So this day belongs to her as well. People who know me know that I no longer have an original copy of my law degree. And that's because when I buried my grandmother, I placed it in her casket because it belonged to her. Today belongs to her as well. I wouldn't have been a lawyer if it weren't for my grandmother and the opportunity she provided me. I wouldn't have been a judge. And today I wouldn't have been a justice if it weren't for my grandmother. <laughs> that's California Supreme Court Associate Justice Kelly Evans speaking at her confirmation hearing in November 2022. She's our guest here on Out in the Bay. When you said that you placed your original law degree in your grandmother's casket because it belonged to her, what do you mean by it belonged to her? Yeah, I think without her nurturance, without her encouragement, without her support, I likely would not have um, prioritized education the way that I did. I probably would not have had the love for learning that I had or the, the faith in this country or the optimism that things could be better. You know, she, through her encouragement of education, really exposed me to worlds far beyond anything she ever had access to herself. And um, you know, without that support, without that spark, there's no way that I would have been able to accomplish all that I've accomplished in my life. So you'd mentioned how she instilled in you, made sure you had books around the house. Do you remember any books that particularly affected you as a kid, like really interested you as a kid? I was such a voracious reader that I don't know that there's one particular title or, or set of titles that leap out. As I mentioned, I love the encyclopedia, and I literally would read them back and forth, A to Z, Z to A. Um, and I can only imagine that, you know, this was pre-internet. We didn't have access to Google. We had access to the, the books in our home and also a local public library as well. And so it was a small public library, but the librarian was so kind. And I read every book in the library, but she would always order more books, more books, more books. So that was terrific. And we did have a neighborhood bookmobile that would come by periodically, as you mentioned at the outset. You know, as a, as a young child, I loved the Laura Ingle Wilder books, the Little House on the Prairie series. I loved mysteries. I loved fiction. I loved nonfiction. I loved so many different books and genres of books. It's hard to pin me down for one particular book or set of books. Mm -hmm. So what happened when you went to high school? I understand things kind of changed at that point. So I grew up with my grandmother in public housing. And at that time, the federal government, um, HUD, had a program where they were uh, experimenting with integrating lower income families into market rate housing. And so there was a program where folks in public housing could sign up to participate in this program. So we're on the wait list for many, many years, as far as I can recall. And a couple weeks after the beginning of high school started, we got the call that our ticket had come up and we were selected to move. 
out of the public housing project to this market rate apartment complex, which, as you mentioned, happened to be in the catchment of one of the best public school districts, at least at the time, in Colorado. So the timing could not have been better. Uh, so we moved from public housing to this, in retrospect, very modest two-bedroom apartment complex. But at the time, you know, we felt like the Jeffersons. We were moving on up. <laughs> right. It just seemed um, incredible. And the school, the high school, is really what every public high school should be, what every child in this country and in the world should have access to. There were AP courses. There were amazing extracurricular activities. There was a radio station and a swimming pool and, you know, everything that you could want and imagine for, a, you know, a young person who's exploring and learning about the world. And so I had access to that at the perfect time. And you mentioned public housing. At your swearing-in, Governor Newsom seemed to go out of his way by saying you were not just raised by your grandma, you were raised in public housing by your grandma. And I wonder why you think he stressed in public housing. Well, I, you know, you'd have to ask the governor. I imagine it's because maybe that my experience is not the typical experience that one may think of when you think of someone who has achieved at the levels that I've achieved. You know, I understand what it's like to live in poverty. I understand what it's like to be raised by a single parent, by a grandparent. I have a perspective and experience that not a lot of lawyers have, not a lot of judges have. So I think that may be something that stood out to the governor. Uh, and I, I think it probably is also a recognition of something that I knew growing up and I wish more people knew, and that is that there are lots of brilliant, extremely hardworking, ingenious, poor people. What they lack are resources and opportunity. They're not lacking in intellect. They're not lacking in character. They're not lacking in grit. Um, what they lack are resources and opportunity. And I think the governor likely recognized that. Yeah. And I think, you know, well, Martin Jenkins is another great example of that. I know he grew up in a in pretty modest background, shall we say, and, and went so far as, as you have. I also wonder, the court is more racially diverse than it was in the past, and now we have two LGBTQ people on the on the high court here. And I'm also wondering what it says about the importance of diversity in terms of economic background and understanding where people come from who may be in trouble with the criminal justice system, like in a way that others aren't. Yeah, I you know, I think in every context, whether it's in courts or in a corporate boardroom or maybe a newsroom, diversity matters. Who's at the table matters, representation matters. You know, who is part of a conversation helps determine what problems are framed, what solutions are posed, what experiences are brought to bear, what experiences are given credibility. You know, who's part of the conversation helps hopefully lead to a richer outcome or, or a richer understanding of whatever the issues are that are under discussion. So, you know, I hope that I will be able to help enrich the conversation at the California Supreme Court. But no matter what the context, whether it's a court or a boardroom or a classroom, who's at the table can fundamentally help shape or reframe what's discussed and, and where the conversation goes. So when and why did you become attracted to law? You know, I was one of these maybe odd ducks who thought or knew I wanted to be an attorney at a very, very young age, maybe six or seven years old. I didn't even know what that meant. I used to watch Perry Mason with my grandmother. And, <laughs> you know, I don't know if that was the spark or not, but... Uh, I, I watched a lot of Perry Mason as a kid too. Yes. You know, I think in my child mind, in my, you know, my girl mind, I thought that being a lawyer had something to do with fairness and lawyers got to argue. And I think maybe it was an argumentative child, I don't know. But 
I knew, and I'll loop back to something I said a moment ago, I knew that certainly my grandmother and my family members and so many friends and neighbors and people in my community were incredibly smart, incredibly funny, incredibly hardworking. But I also knew that we didn't have the same opportunities or the same creature comforts that you know, I saw on TV and you know, saw movies and saw that so many other people in society had. And I knew that there was a level of inequality that just didn't sit right with me. And I hope to be able to to do something about it. So when you were in high school, did you have a sense that that was probably the direction you would go in to be a lawyer or a judge? I, you know, I kept that thread throughout my childhood, throughout my adolescence, throughout college. I was a public policy major in college and uh, the public policy major, Stanford, at least at that time, did not have a pre-law major, but the public policy major was, you know, maybe a, a close substitute. I was always interested in law, always interested in policy. And when it came time to think about applying to law school. I tried to, as much as any, you know, what 21-year-old person can do, be very reflective about it and very intentional and ask myself, am I doing this because it's something I want to do now that's the right thing for me now? Or am I only doing this because I'm on autopilot because I always said I would do it? And uh, my response was, I want to do this now. And as soon as I got to law school, I knew it was the right decision. I'm one of those probably, again, I'll use the term, you know, rare bird or, or rare duck who loved law school. I found it um, incredibly intellectually stimulating and fun and challenging. I really enjoyed my law school experience. That is somewhat unusual. I mean, I know a lot of people love it intellectually, but it's so grueling. Well, you know, I didn't find it so grueling and partly because maybe since I was 13 years old, I always had a job outside of school, so I always was working to help support our family. I, so late junior high, throughout high school, throughout college, I, I was always working upwards to 20, maybe sometimes even 30 hours a week on top of my studies. My first year of law school was the first time, maybe since elementary school or early junior high or middle school, that I didn't have an outside job. I just, that my first year of law school just focused on my studies. So I felt like I had all of the time in the world. It was a leisurely experience for me in some ways. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. You're hearing Out in the Bay, Queer Radio from San Francisco. I'm Eric Jansen speaking with California Supreme Court and Associate Justice Kelly Evans, the first out lesbian on California's highest court. So that brings me to when did you come out? How did you first know that you were perhaps different from, from the other girls? Well, you know, I think I have officially came out in college, but as as with lots of queer people, I think as as a young person, I felt different, but wasn't able to put that into words or put my finger on it. Uh, you know, I dated boys in in high school and the, the beginning of college. Um, in college, I spent my junior year in Spain, so I was away from very far from home, far from the United States, and. That's where I had my first relationship with another woman. It may be easier to, to do to do that in another country when you're so far away from everything you know. But um, that really sealed the deal for me, made everything clear <laughs> that it maybe not been so clear uh, before then. When I came back to Stanford, I was very fortunate to have uh, a pretty large uh, or burgeoning community of socially active queer students that were on campus all coming out around the same time together, and there was a real community at that time. Tell us about meeting your wife at Stanford, right? This was the summer before our senior year. 
I lived in a, a co-op. There was a, there was a series of cooperative houses at Stanford that were student student run, student organized, and then they're open during the summer as well. I was there in the house one afternoon. There was a pool table in the in the lounge, and we would often friends in the house would play pool until the late the wee hours of the evening. And one afternoon, we were playing pool, and a woman at the front door was nearby. It was in in um, eyesight of the pool table, came in the front door, and I had never seen her before. She didn't live there. And it was my wife, Terry, my now wife, Terry. Um, she had a friend who lived in the house. And so that's how we met. And she proceeded that afternoon to soundly beat me at pool. <laughs> but we became <laughs> friends and eventually uh, became a couple and have been together uh pretty much ever since. So since that was 1990 and we're now in 2023, so you can do the math. <laughs> oh, fantastic. That's funny. I have a, a guy in my college dorm, always also a great pool player, a very handsome Iranian student. And um, unfortunately, we never, I think we were both not out yet, <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> but we played a lot of pool together. There you go. <laughs> and that was fun. <laughs> um, so I want to ask you about representation. It's so important, especially now that we're seeing so many attacks on LGBTQ rights. You shared a story with our producer, Kendra Klang, about representation a few weeks ago, something about school kids visiting the state capitol, I believe. Can you share that with our listeners? Sure. This was while I was still at the governor's office. So this was a few years ago and um, shortly before the pandemic. So we were still in the office every day and the office was at the state capitol and frequently outside of the governor's office groups of tourists or school field trips would congregate in hopes of catching uh, catching sight of the governor as he would be leaving the office. And one day I left the office to go grab lunch and I saw a group of school children, probably third, maybe fourth graders, and a very diverse group of kids, a lot of brown and black children, super diverse um, school group. And as I walked out, one of the kids jokingly, I believe jokingly said to me, are you the governor? And I said, no, I'm not the governor. I'm one of his attorneys. And I chit-chatted with them for a few minutes, thanked them for coming and asked them what they had seen and what they were doing. And as I walked away, I could hear this chatter reverberate through the group. She's one of his lawyers. 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 And it was so heartwarming to me because I hope that those children now have in their heads an image of what a lawyer can look like. And it's someone who maybe looks a lot like them. That um, That's an image that I never had, um, so much so that I almost have to work against if I were to do a word association game and someone were to say, think of a lawyer, despite the fact that I'm a lawyer, a judge, a justice, I don't know that it's someone that looks like me that's the image that pops into my mind. Right. That these children have a broader conception of what being a lawyer can be. Mm-hmm. So you're the first queer woman, and by extension, the first queer woman of color on the California Supreme Court. Any thoughts on this appointment being historic? Well, you know, certainly I stand on the shoulders of many people who came before me who, you know, were role models as, as people of color, who were role models as women, who were role models as, as LGBT Q professionals. Um, you know, I mentioned my grandmother's support and guidance. I'm certainly proud and honored to be a first, and I hope that that I will be able to be a role model for others. I was at a reception yesterday afternoon with other court 
employees. And I had a court employee come up to me and thank me for being an out face at the court. So for this particular employee, my presence here was something that was noteworthy and welcome for her. And I hope that that that'll be the case and it'll be the message for you know people throughout throughout our state and, and maybe um, beyond the borders of California as well. Mm-hmm. So just a little bit about the California Supreme Court itself, its workings. We're used to hearing about contentious split decisions, often along political party lines from the U.S. Supreme Court. But the California Supreme Court is known for consensus, often usually unanimous decisions. Is that typical for state Supreme Courts, or is there something special about California's Supreme Court? Well, it varies, but I do think that there is something special and unique about the California Supreme Court. I think the California Supreme Court has worked very hard over the years to remember what its job is, and that is to enforce the law impartially. You know, the individual justices' personal policy priorities, is those are irrelevant. What's important is what is the law. And so we do our best to work together as uh, a group of people who have different experiences and different perspectives to interpret the law in a way that we believe is faithful to the Constitution and to the statutes. And when there are ambiguities or lack of clear precedent to, to announce a rule that will make sense in terms of the development of the law. And we do so in a way that involves a lot of iteration, a lot of dialogue, a lot of debate, always respectful. It's not that people always agree. In fact, there's a, a lot of disagreement, but it's done so in a professional manner and with the understanding that every single person is doing their best to get to the right place. We're recording this conversation February 15th, 2023, about six weeks after you took your place on the bench at the high court. How has it been so far and what do you look forward to? Well, it's been tremendous so far. I've had the opportunity of having, uh, of being able to participate in two oral arguments so far already, and that has been terrific. Um, the cases have been very interesting, and it's been wonderful sitting with my colleagues and discussing the cases with them before and after the oral arguments, and certainly having the opportunity to ask the advocates, the attorneys during the oral arguments questions about the issues, and then you know go back with my colleagues and we'll decide what to do with the cases before us. The other justices to a person have been so incredibly generous and friendly and kind. And I can say that for the entire staff of the California Supreme Court. It's a very welcoming place. It's a very collegial place. The work is challenging. It's intellectually engaging. It's voluminous, but so far so good. I'm very, very privileged to be here and look forward to everything to come. Obviously, six weeks in, I have not yet had an opportunity to write my own decisions, but I look forward to doing that in the coming months and just look forward to everything. One of the wonderful things about this job, and in some ways it's reflective of my entire legal career, is that there's so much diversity. You know, in a single morning, we may hear criminal cases or civil cases or death penalty cases or all sorts of variations of those categories that I just mentioned. So never a dull moment. It's, it's just been terrific. What is it like, though, to switch from you know, some of your previous work, let's say, for example, in criminal justice and police reform, was advocacy in nature. And now on your role in the Supreme Court, you can't really be an advocate for one thing or the other, but you are giving the other justices perhaps uh, a window into your life experience, which may affect how they rule on a case. Do you miss the advocacy work or is it sort of still there in a way? 
Well, you know, I'm an advocate for the rule of law, an advocate for the Constitution, uh, you know, maybe an advocate for um, my position, you know, if, if to the extent I may have a different position or a, a tweak on a position that others may be articulating. Uh, I was, as you mentioned during your introduction, I was an Alameda County Superior Court judge before coming here. So I have been away from the traditional advocacy role for some time and I enjoyed being a trial court judge. Uh, the first rule of being a judge is being impartial, uh, not being an advocate for either side. And and sometimes when you're wearing the black robe and you're the decision maker, it, it can be a little frustrating when you know that an advocate on one side or the other maybe isn't making their strongest argument or, or putting the best case forward that they may have. But that's not a judge's job to do that for them. It's to receive the information and to you know use your best judgment to interpret the law and make a decision. Uh, and so I, I loved being a trial court judge. And so far, six weeks in, being a Supreme Court justice has been pretty terrific as well. Is it easy for you, like being in law school? Or or, or do you think you're having just as, working just as hard as everyone else is? <laughs> you know, I'm working it's not very, a trick very question. hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very hard. Yeah. <laughs> okay, because Martin uh, Judge Jenkins did tell me that he he was like, well, oh, long, long hours, very long correct. hours. He's correct. Um, one last thing for you, and I understand you may not be able to answer this, but are there any cases that our LGBTQ listeners perhaps should be aware of that are coming before the Supreme Court anytime this year or, or in the near future? Well, I'll say two things. The first thing is that, you know, the range of cases that the Supreme Court hears are certainly relevant to all Californians, including LGBTQ Californians, whether they deal with, uh, you know, tax law or with family law or with criminal justice issues. Certainly, there are LGBTQ people who are going to be impacted by those decisions. In terms of whether there are any ones that may have particular interest for LGBTQ folks, I will allow your listeners to make that decision for themselves. The Supreme Court, we have a website where we publish all of the cases where we grant review, where we decide that we're going to hear the issues. And so folks can go there and see which cases are upcoming. They can also tune in every month and listen live and watch live our oral arguments as well. They can also come to the courtrooms and watch in person, but they can tune in online as well. Uh, anything else you would like listeners to know about you? Um, I'm just delighted to be here, and I want to thank you, Eric, for inviting me to appear on your show and would be happy to speak with you again in the future if you would like. Great. Well, I hope that will happen. Uh, if I understood right... Producer Kendra Klang tells me that Oh Happy Day is among one of your favorite songs. Is that true? And if so, why? It was one of my grandmother's favorite gospel songs. Uh, and so I guess maybe by extension, it's one of mine as well. It was a song that the uh, choir sang during her funeral. And so even that was a very, very sad day for her family and friends, you know, knowing that you know, she would be happy hearing that song certainly made it a little little less grim than it otherwise would have been, but it was certainly one of her favorite gospel songs. It's a beautiful song, so I certainly would have no objection to you playing me off to that song. <laughs> very good, yeah. So thank you very much. Okay, take care. Thanks again. You've been listening to Out in the Bay, Queer Radio and Podcast. 
My guest was California Supreme Court Associate Justice Kelly Evans. Instead of our regular theme music, today we close with Oh Happy Day, one of her grandmother's favorite gospel songs. Sung here by Edwin Hawkins and the Northern California State Youth Choir, Berkeley, California, 1967. It won a gospel performance Grammy in 1970. For more information about Justice Evans, see our post for this edition of Out in the Bay on our website, outinthebay.org. That's outinthebay.org, where you can hear past shows, hear this show again, get in touch, and subscribe to our podcast and our email newsletter. While you're there, please consider chipping in. Your donation will help us keep sharing queer voices and stories around the Bay, the nation, and the globe. Out in the Bay is nonprofit and independent. That means we get no financial support from the radio stations that air Out in the Bay Weekly, nor from NPR, nor from podcast platforms. We rely on listener support. Just hit the donate button at outinthebay.org. Thank you kindly. That's outinthebay.org. We're deeply grateful, as always, to Richard Merck and Brad Payton of Silicon Valley for their ongoing generous support. And to John Kaner and Paul Booth in Berkeley. And Cornelia Enders and Bud Dylan of San Francisco. We'll thank you on the air only if you say it's okay. This week's edition was produced by Kendra Klang with audio editing by David Kwan. I'm Eric Jansen. Thanks for joining us out in the Bay at outinthebay.org. <laughs>